welcome to episode 11 of That's All I Know, the podcast for the perpetually curious. I'm Daniel, the curious one, and I've got someone new today. I've got Niall, my brother-in-law, my mum's favourite son-in-law, no matter who future son-in-laws are. Hello. That's quite an introduction. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell us something about yourself? Um, yeah, I... Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I am really interested in ice. That's mainly what I'm curious about. I'm curious about lots of things. Nice. I'd say ice is the, the weirdest one. You have been mentioned in the context of icy stuff before. Yep, I've heard about um, catabatic winds in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. I think you've been mentioned other times, but your first time as a featured artist? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> so as usual, I've got a clue for you. Mm-hmm. Your clue is... We've been here before. It's a very cryptic clue. Um, you got anything else for me? Or? Um, I mean, we do usually only have one clue. <laughs> My feeling is something about adventurers. If I was going to hazard a guess, and I think I'm probably wrong, we're going to talk about Vikings landing in America long before uh, what would usually be like Christopher Columbus. That would be very interesting, but it's not that. Wrong, yeah. <laughs> Your episode is an episode of two halves. Oh, okay. <laughs> As everyone is, but you have two stories. Okay. Our first story starts on the 4th of October, 1958, with the births of... Gillian and Jennifer Pollock. Mm-hmm. The Pollocks are a family from Hexham in Northumberland. And these girls, fairly obviously, are twins. Identical twins. Yep. Except for two very specific parts of them which are not identical. Jennifer has two birthmarks. She has one on the left side of her waist and another one above her right eye. Mm-hmm. Which is not that weird until you consider that they're in the exact same place as two marks that her older sister had. She also had a birthmark on her waist and she had a scar on her forehead in the same place that Jennifer now has a birthmark. Is that one? What are our birthmarks genetic? Uh well, they're somehow part of your genes, yeah, yeah. but what I didn't know before this is that normally identical twins have the same birthmarks. Okay, yeah. Okay. Which seems like it should be obvious when you say it out well, loud. I don't but know whether like it's like in your DNA or whatever, or if like it's literally a mark from you being in a certain position for a week. When something important happening, right? <laughs> that, that's plausible. I guess. Yeah. Like a permanent bruise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I found out that generally identical twins have the same one, so I guess it is a mm-hmm. genetic yeah, thing. Yeah, I guess. But on top of that weirdness, mm-hmm. there's the fact that the sister that had those two marks 
when she was six years old, along with her 11-year-old sister, was killed in a car accident about a year and a half before the twins were born. Yep. And their dad was a big believer in reincarnation. And he was adamant all through the pregnancy that the girls would be reborn, even though the doctors kept telling him there was only one baby. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the birthmarks that are similar between the two sets of sisters. Some of these, I don't know, I'm not sure how much you'll buy some of these as actual similarities, but yep. I'll tell you. <laughs> Your face tells me you're not buying it well, so I'll tell far. You as we rattle through the list. <laughs> Birthmarks, I'm saying, is an actual similarity. If you're telling me they both liked milk as a baby, <laughs> I won't be so convinced. Okay. So these twins are very close to their grandmother, even though they were raised by their mum. But the older sisters were raised mostly by their grandmother, while the parents ran their business. Mm-hmm. Joanna, the 11-year-old, was very motherly towards Jacqueline, the 6-year-old. And so is Gillian towards Jennifer, even though they're twins and obviously the same age. Yep. Gillian took on the more like motherly role between them. When they were given the older sister's toys at three years old, Gillian took a liking to all of Joanna's toys and Jennifer took a liking to all of Jacqueline's toys. And both of them could, like, name their older sister's dolls without knowing about them. Yep. I wonder <laughs> if this has been independently observed, or whether this is the parents telling us this. It's probably mostly the parents and grandparents, I suppose. But that's what they said. When... Jacqueline was learning to write. She would hold her pencil in her fist. Like, that's how toddlers learn to write, right? And then she never really grew out of that in the couple of years following. And when Jennifer learned to write, she did the same thing until she was seven and then reverted back to that as an adult. Well, Gillian could always write correctly. Okay. Like Joanna, Gillian loved to dress up and act. Uh, Jennifer didn't really have that interest, but Gillian did. And apparently when Joanna was alive, she would often say, I will never be a lady. Which the parents later took to mean that she'd never grow up. But she could have been just a proper lad. Mm-hmm. Could have been trans. Who knows? There's plenty of ways she couldn't have been a lady. But obviously, if she says that and then dies, they're going to go, well, she knew. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
So what do you make of that list? I think that the vast majority of those things, if not all of those things, could be explained by a combination of a few things. Okay. First of all, these are four children raised by the same two parents. Yeah. So there's going to be some similarities. There's going to be a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. There's also their same genetics. So the nature and the nurture is all forcing these four children to have similarities. Now, there's going to be some coincidence about what child likes this and what child likes that. Mm-hmm. And once the parents spot those coincidences, then they're going to be looking out for them and paying attention to them. And when those coincidences occur, they're going to make a note of them. Oh, did you notice that they like the same toys? But when those coincidences don't occur, like, oh, did you notice that, you know, Jennifer also really loved um, Pear? Pear was her favourite fruit. Mm-hmm. Or, or the player wasn't her favourite fruit or whatever. If they're not a coincidence, then they'll just forget about that one. So there's some confirmation bias yeah. going on. Okay, that's fair. And uh, I think that in combination, all those things could explain a list like this. Okay. I, I, I mean, is there anything on that list that you think is unexplainable? Um. The naming of the toys, for example, I completely can imagine um, parents not really realising how much they're kind of sculpting their child to behave the same way, to name, oh, what do you think could be a nice name for this toy? Could it be? There's loads of lovely names, aren't there? Brian. <laughs> Great name for a doll. <gasps> oh, my God. Jennifer also called it Brian. It's a coincidence. If they'd genuinely never heard the names of the dolls yeah. and had plucked those names out of thin air, mm-hmm. then it would be a very strange coincidence. Do you know the names of the dolls? I don't know the names of the dolls. That's what I was gonna say. If they're dolly. really if they're really generic names, it doesn't mean anything, I don't think. Um Yeah, I don't I don't think there's anything on here that's unexplainable on its own, but they are weird coincidences that when you put them all together do sound even weirder mm-hmm. yeah I'm not suggesting any sort of malice I really think the parents have accidentally noticed a couple of things that are similar mm-hmm. I'm assuming that this was a story that was then sold on to newspapers or books or no I don't think so I don't think, I don't think they made any money off it or anything no. there were things that they said that I'll let you judge them. Mm-hmm. But there were things that they said that people found strange as well. So Gillian told them that the birthmark on Jennifer's head was the mark Jennifer got when she fell on a bucket. And that is how Jacqueline got the scar. Yep. And as far as they're concerned, there's no reason for her to know that Jacqueline had a scar, never mind how she got it. Both of the girls were really scared of cars. Yeah, that's normal. And apparently once screamed, the car is coming for us, when they heard an engine in an alleyway. But do you think that their parents would have discussed, this would be... It depends whether this was something that wasn't discussed, mm-hmm. or whether this is something that they would be aware of as a possibility in their lives would happen to their sisters and would be naturally more scared of cars. Uh, from what I could gather, 
they didn't it's not like they knew that's how their sisters died. Yeah. But they the parents could have like subconsciously yeah. instilled that fear in them because that's how the yeah, others died. I've been pretty scared of cars. I think if my from a child to the age of my parents were acting I mean I suppose that once he was involved in that sort of thing, your parents might not drive anymore. They definitely behave in a different way. Mm. Okay, that one we're scrapping then. Yeah. Okay. Their mum once saw Gillian cradling Jennifer's head and heard her say, the blood's coming out of your eyes, that's where the car hit you. And again, the twins apparently didn't know how the sisters had died and when the dad went to identify the bodies, Jacqueline did have a bandage over her eyes, like above her mm-hmm. eyes. I mean, it's getting increasingly creepy. It's creepy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't want to be around these twins. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder whether uh, an additional explanatory factor could be some sort of sensationalism in the way that this has been reported. Um, I'm not sure how this all came to light. If I'm honest, neither am I. But you can imagine that, you know, you've got a grain of truth and you might want to spice it up a little bit. Yeah. You know, that's the sort of creepy thing that would sell a few more, however this was initially distributed. Mm -hmm. Perhaps. Maybe, yeah. What about this one, then? The family moved away from Hexham when the twins were nine months old and they didn't return for three or four years. When they returned, the girls knew their way around the town. They specifically asked to go to the park with the swings and knew where it was and they knew the people in the village. The creepy twin. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this reminds me very much of the sort of thing that your mum says about, oh, did you know by the, by the age of three weeks when Dan was completing puzzles and speaking in Latin? <laughs> <laughs> or something to that effect. <laughs> I still don't believe that I wasn't taught to read. That's not possible. Yeah. yeah. When they were four, Jennifer saw their dad wearing a smock. I had to look up what a smock is, if I'm honest. I share one of my favourite words. Uh It's just smockless. Now, that doesn't mean to not have a smock. It (laughs) means to not have a smock and be in want of a smock. (laughs) That's a very specific word. Yeah. Don't get to use it very often. So if you're in a smock shop, you're smockless. Or if you were doing some pottery... And you're just in your normal clothes, so I might be smockless. Yeah, okay. But Jennifer saw her dad wearing this smock. He was not smockless. Mm-hmm. And asked, why are you wearing mummy's coat? She got frustrated with Gillian because she didn't recognise it. When they asked how she knew that it belonged to their mum, Jennifer said it was the one she wore to deliver milk. Now, 
the mum did wear it to deliver milk, but that was while the older sisters were still alive, and Jacqueline was at home with her all the time, and Joanna was at school. The smock was put away after the girls died, and by the time the twins were born, and after they were born, the mum was not working. So there was no time that Jennifer would have seen her wearing it for work. Yep. So, I feel like my job at the moment is to provide rational explanations. Yeah, go on. This creepy behaviour. And now I don't know whether there might be photos of her mum wearing this in a photo book at some point. Um, although I would say that I'm increasingly convinced that this should be adapted into a Hollywood screenplay. <laughs> I think there's not masses of information about it. And, you know, I think there's enough in it that they could make it creepy enough to be a film, but well, apparently... You need, you need some big crescendo at the end. Maybe you're building towards that. But, I mean, I'm I'm waiting for some sort of... That they all orchestrate the car crash. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I, they would need to, you know, have some creative licenses. Although I suspect some creative license has already been taken. Yeah. I don't have the inside scoop on the car crash, but I can tell you what the twins think about it. They're still alive, are they? Uh, they might be. I can tell you at least what they thought about it as adults. Okay. They were born in 1958, so they could be yeah. quite easily. When they were around seven, their memories of their previous lives stopped. Which, apparently, like all these kids that apparently remember their past lives, it's like between five and seven that they stop being able to remember it. There are lots of these kids, were there? There's, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a psychologist and he did a study on 24 of them. Okay. A little community of, um, I don't know, do we have a collective name? Rian. Carnates. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, between five and seven tends to be the time that they stop remembering. These girls stopped remembering when they were about seven. And although they couldn't remember all of the stories from when they were younger, they did just sort of loosely accept that they were reincarnations of their sisters. <laughs> they were a bit sceptical, but I think it was sort of like, well, if their parents want to believe it, then they'll go along with it. Yeah. And the last, I guess, recorded or publicised um, example of their past life memories was when Gillian was in her 20s. She had a vision of playing in a sandpit in Wickham. And despite never having been to Wickham, she was able to perfectly describe the house and the garden where the family had lived eight years before the twins were born. Now you're going to tell me she's seen photos, right? Yeah, <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. It's a bit 
would you like me to just go, oh, no, actually, that has convinced me. <laughs> that, there has to be something fishy going on now. I didn't think it would, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are you convinced? No, I just, like, reincarnation and all of these little stories are one of the things that I kind of wish I believed for fun, but I don't really. There's a few things like that. Yeah, yeah. It's safe. <laughs> well, maybe I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't want reincarnation to exist. I mean, being stuck in an loop. I mean, it's the idea that, um, I suppose it depends on your interpretation of reincarnation. But I know that in some instances, then you would be essentially demoted to animal, right? If you hadn't behaved very well. And you'd be yeah. promoted. And that, um, so I would, you know, very annoying to be reincarn- reincarnated as like a housewife. Like a slug. Yeah, exactly. Mm-mm. And then how do you be a good slug? Um, don't eat frogs. Yeah, okay. Like the nice probably, ones. That would end your life as a slug pretty quickly <laughs> as well. To move on. There you go, problem solved. Harvest mouse. So as you're saying, some people believe that they picked up stuff from their family about the sisters and, you know, through photos or stories, like the parents could have easily made passing mentions of things and then just not remembered that they'd said it once these weird coincidences took place. But yeah, things like the fear of cars might have just rubbed off on them. Um, the dad's belief was that the the older girls had been killed because he was asking God for proof of reincarnation, which that sort of doesn't really make sense, even if you believe that that would be possible, because he's reasoning was that they'd been killed as a punishment for him doing that but then he gets rewarded by the improving right so that doesn't that doesn't line up well god works in mysterious ways <laughs> clearly um so he so he thinks it was a punishment understandably he thinks it was a punishment as initial two daughters were killed in the car crash yeah and then a reward that well he got what he wanted because because he now has proof of reincarnation in his eyes. Yeah, I'm not sure he thinks of it as a reward, but that is what it would be if well, that's how you think it all happened. You know, there are, in the Bible, I guess there are lots of examples of people asking for things and then God saying, yeah, okay, I'm going to give you... He's a bit like a, a genie, a trickster genie. Yeah who will say, well, you wanted this, so I'm going to give you something that's technically right, and it's going to really <laughs> annoy you. It's like that Inside Number 9 episode. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, so, you know, maybe that's what God does. This is definitely in God's modus operandi. <laughs> so these two and this story was suggested to me by Shauna. Really? And I wonder if 
I didn't ask her why she suggested it. We could ask her. I wonder if it was just so that you would sit there and go, <laughs> all of that's rubbish. <laughs> well, I mean, that would be very typical of me for lots of different things. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think of um, examples of other episodes thus far, but for example, I don't believe the Yeti was involved in attacking those people in the tent on the Diolof Pass. No. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but no, it's been a very entertaining, very entertaining story. As I say, would watch the screenplay, would watch the film. Maybe we should fund it. <laughs> yeah. I'd like it to be a low-budget indie version. <laughs> really, really poor quality. Horror films are best like that. Yeah, we'll just film it ourselves. Yeah. It'll be great and terrible. Did we know any twins you could see? I don't think I do. Uh, I don't think so. I guess, I was going to say with the wonder of editing, just before somebody, one person, kind of double up. But actually, no, we're filming it, we're doing editing, so let's not bank on the wonder of editing. <laughs> So your second story, I wonder if this will convince you any more of the reality of reincarnation. Is this from one of the other 25 that was researched by Amy's group? No. But this is sort of hailed as one of the best examples and the best proof of reincarnation. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about Dorothy Edie, a.k.a. Omseti. Ooh. She's got her name. <laughs> she was born in London in 1904. And when she was three, she fell down the stairs, hit her head, and was reportedly pronounced dead. This is um, very relevant to my ongoing decision about whether to get a baby girl. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming points in favour. <laughs> points in favour, yeah. <laughs> but the doctor pronounced her dead, left the house, and then when they came back to sort of deal with that, she was alive and well. Oh, not a great doctor. Depending on your definition of well, I think. As a side note, my... my, my, my argument has been that um, children fall downstairs and it's fine. And this point is obviously that children are not necessarily fine when they fall downstairs. Yeah. Now my point in my head back back at that was, well, this is 1904. They had very steep stairs. And, um, you see your house? Medicine. But now, and now and then I also thought, this house was built in 1904. This is very steep stairs. <laughs> and a hard brick wall at the bottom of those stairs. Yeah. So you can see my, my internal debate. Anyway, yeah, she was that she was alive and air quotes well. Yes. Some people say that after after this incident, she was experiencing foreign accent syndrome. I mean, I've never heard of it, but I think I know exactly what it is. So it happens. I think it's. You know, not that uncommon. When people have head injuries, they can suddenly like speak new languages or speak with a different accent. No, it sounds like it is pretty uncommon because no matter how hard I hit my head, I'm not going to start speaking Norwegian. 
Right, but I don't think you've ever hit your head hard enough to get a brain injury. No, but I don't have the knowledge to speak Norwegian. Well, this is why it's a freak occurrence. And so then this leads me... I mean, that, that seems to me to be unbelievable. The accents thing is believable, but what I was wondering is... So I'd be pretty poor at all accents. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, for example, do a Welsh accent. Yeah. If I hit my head and had this um, this syndrome, was it, was it a foreign accent syndrome. syndrome? Would I then speak in my poor interpretation of a Welsh accent, or a great, you know, real a Welsh accent? I'm imagining you sound like Bryn. Okay. Well, that would line up with being able to speak languages that you have no knowledge of. That you were suddenly improved. I'm not just attempting to speak Norwegian, Norwegian <laughs> style sounds, or attempting to sound Welsh. I I think the accent is more common than the languages. Yeah, because the language won't even exist. <laughs> okay. Well, unless these are people who had such severe brain injuries that they lost the ability to speak. And then relearned another language. Well, there's things as well, like people supposedly being able to play instruments that they couldn't play before and stuff like that. You don't believe that? I'm not sure I do. I mean, the knowledge isn't in my head. Yeah. How could I? Yeah, no, I don't believe it. <laughs> I'm confident enough to say I don't believe that. Okay. The accent one, it could, like, they could not necessarily be speaking in an accent. It just changes the way someone speaks, and then people yeah, go, oh, yeah, that yeah. sounds a bit like blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And, like, you, you commonly hear about people changing their moods or their temperaments. Yeah. And that's all believable because, you know, you have the ability to have those moods or temperaments. Yeah. But I do not think that I would be able to be an Olympic gymnast. After <laughs> four I don't think it's worth trying. No, 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 no. Some people think it's just foreign accent syndrome. Some people think it's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. For a start, she kept asking her parents to take her home, except she and they had no idea where home was to her. Because it wasn't their house. And they had no idea for several months until they took her to an ancient Egypt exhibit at the British Museum where she pointed to a photo and said, that's my home. Lucky coincidence. <laughs> where was this? Was this, uh, this one of the tombs somewhere famous? Is uh, this she secretly like, an you know, um, an Egyptian queen? No. Or a peasant. Somewhere between the two. Okay. <laughs> so she saw it, recognized it as her home, but she was confused because she wanted to know where the trees were and where the gardens were, because she insisted that she'd lived there, but that these photos that she saw were not the same as when she lived there. 
and there was the temple of Seti the First, i.e. Ramses the Great's dad. She ran through the rest of the Egyptian rooms, just completely overjoyed to be amongst her people, and kissed the feet of statues and all this stuff. And her parents tried to put a stop to it, but she visited the Egyptian rooms as often as she could. And eventually, an Egyptologist at the museum suggested she study hieroglyphics. Yeah. So she did. One was the Rosetta Stones. I didn't know that they could read hieroglyphics back then, but maybe I'm way out. Maybe they could read hieroglyphics hundreds of years years ago. <laughs> anyway, yeah, they must have been able to read them. If this guy's job is an Egyptologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So her beliefs... Specifically, her memories of the old religion got her into a lot of trouble as a kid. She was expelled from school for refusing to sing a hymn, calling on God to curse the Egyptians, throwing the hymn book at her teacher and storming out of class. Oh, good on her. (laughs) I assume that hymn has fallen out of favour. Not that I know any hymns. Me neither. I assume that's not. Yeah. I don't imagine that's still popular anymore. No. So, if nothing else, I like that bit of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, her parents were asked to stop her from attending Sunday school because she kept comparing Christianity to the old religion. Mm-hmm. And she actually enjoyed Catholic Mass which I don't think anyone else in the world has ever done. Oh, the Pope wasn't. <laughs> right? Anyway, yeah. She enjoyed it. She enjoyed it because it reminded her of the old religion. But the priest was so angered by the comparison that he told her she was no longer welcome in his congregation. Yep. She sounds like an early 20th century troll. She just says whatever <laughs> people around her and isolate her I mean you've got to come up with any way you can to get out of Sunday school surely (laughs) when she was 14 she claimed to have been Seti the first lover and described their relationship and even claimed to have been visited by his mummy at night. Mm-hmm. So her parents did the only reasonable thing, and they had her committed to a string of sanatoriums. What are they going to do? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I guess by this point they just didn't know what to do with her, so they were like... Someone else could deal with that. I really didn't think you were going to say that. For some reason, I'm sure you're going to say they mummified her. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that makes no sense. They it would be a criminal not. act. 
but even for the sake of like getting out of the sanatoriums, she wouldn't deny her past life. Like she's stuck to her guns, no matter what. Yeah. So she ended up leaving school at 16 and started studying at an art school in Plymouth where she got to play Isis on stage and loved it. Yeah. Obviously. Of course. During that time, over the course of a year, her past life was revealed to her through a series of nighttime visitations from Hora. I don't know who that is. An Egyptian god. And she says that he revealed to her that in her previous life, she was a girl named Ben Treshet, mm-hmm. who was abandoned at the age of three to be raised in the temple. And she became a priestess of Isis. She met Seti himself in the temple gardens. They started a relationship and she ended up getting pregnant. But as a priestess of Isis, it was a capital offence for her to lose her virginity. So rather than stand trial, she took her own life. It's a big Egyptian moment. My problem with that is that surely the pharaoh could have let her off. Um, Maybe that would be seen as bad form, right? To maintain order, then you need to be shown to be treating everybody equally. But then at the same time, I don't know what the news media is like in ancient Egypt, and maybe we could cover this in like. But like her having committed that supposed crime was his doing. Yeah. Yeah. Even though maybe he just. Maybe. There's, there's explanations, right? He could have just wanted to do a convenient way of getting rid of her. I suppose. They'd fallen out. Or they've been caught and here to appear to be consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in any case, that's her story. Mm-hmm. At 27, she started writing for an Egyptian magazine in London where she met her future husband. They moved to Cairo. They had a son who she named Seti. Of course. And she began calling herself Omseti, which is Arabic for mother of Seti. Are these relatively normal names? Or is it like me calling my child, my child, Zeus? You know what? Actually, maybe people do call their children Zeus. Probably. (laughs) Her husband's family didn't like her stories of like the nighttime visitations and all that kind of stuff. So their marriage only lasted two years before her husband not only left her but also left the country. Yeah. But you know, she's home, she's got her son, she's doing fine. So she 
stayed in Cairo and worked as a draftswoman for the National Department of Antiquities and also published loads of books and articles that are still highly regarded amongst Egyptologists. Pure factual stuff. As in, she wasn't writing about how she, about her relationship with Seti, she was doing proper bread and butter Egypt, Egyptology. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She got mixed responses from locals, though. Some admired her openness about her previous life. Um, some of them kind of feared it and were put off by her practices. She would do things like leave offerings to Horus at the Sphinx and like spend nights in the Great Pyramid of Giza and stuff like that. But she wasn't that bothered about what they thought. She carried on regardless because they were her beliefs. Yep. In 1956, when she's in her 50s, she was offered the chance to work with excavators in Abydos, which is where the temple was. Mm-hmm. And obviously she jumped at the chance because yep. that's her real home. And she helped researchers find the ruins of the gardens that she'd asked about when she saw that photo as a child. So it did exist. It wasn't in the photos that she first saw in the museum. And they knew it existed but didn't know where it was and she helped them find it. Mm -hmm. Because she remembered the temple. All because she was uh, by now a renowned Egyptologist with some knowledge about where these structures might be built. But if she had that knowledge, why wouldn't anyone else? She'd work hard. She'd <laughs> read all the papers. <laughs> she got lucky. A combination of the above. Okay. She also helped find hidden tombs in uh, the Valley of the Kings. Which, until that point, they thought they'd found all of them. And she was like, no, there's more in there. Yeah. And she also mentioned tombs that they couldn't possibly have found at the time. They only actually discovered that they existed years later because of new technology. And she was tested by a chief inspector from Egypt's antiquities department. He took her to the temple where there's a series of wall paintings whose locations had never been published and were known only to a limited set of people. And in pitch black, he described a painting, like in, in turn he described these paintings and asked her to walk to it. And she did every one of them without hesitation. Okay. What do you think of that one? Um, in, uh, at about the last two points, I feel like we have 
moved away from the previous story, where we would probably have the parents implanting their explicit knowledge, mm -hmm. to probably uh, a greater chance of the story being sensationalised in some way in the way that it was reported. And also, I think the fact that she, if I remember right, that she, she'd learned hieroglyphics or had been encouraged to learn hieroglyphics when she was six or something, very young. When she was a kid, yeah. Yeah, and she's obsessed by ancient Egypt. She spends mm -hmm. all her time reading about it. She's going to be, she's going to have more knowledge about that sort of thing than, than the average Joe off the street. And she's probably, her hunches about where things are are probably going to be, you know, as good as, as, good as you're going to get. So if you're going to get a, a very successful researcher about ancient Egypt, and she's probably very likely to be that person. So she's probably wrong a lot of the time, but because of her knowledge of ancient Egypt, she's also probably more likely to know where tombs would be. Okay. All right. That doesn't sound very convincing, does it? I'm not sure. I'm less sceptical about this story because of what the professionals think of her. Right. I mean, they think she's a very good Egyptologist. So there are Egyptologists who say that they'd trust her judgment over any of the most, like, state-of-the-art technology. Yeah, and um, to be fair, I've seen some talks about the state-of-the-art technology used to find tombs and stuff in ancient Egypt. Yeah. And it is just hand-wavy black magic. Sometimes. <laughs> like, um, so, like, they would use radar, essentially, ground-penetrating radar to find tombs and find things through walls, but then interpreting the data is just, like, very difficult and very much, like, somebody waving their hand saying, oh, look, can you see that vague shape in the data? That has to be a mummy. <laughs> or... I mean, it's been used for other things like finding um, trains laden with gold trapped in tunnels. You, know, you see that reflection there? That has to be the gold. <laughs> it turns out not to be. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I would have more faith in her than some of the data, perhaps. Okay, fair enough. Um, so she was not formally educated. Like, she, she did all this stuff and helped like, you know, qualified Egyptologists find all this stuff because she supposedly had the knowledge of it and the memories of it, but she wasn't, like, formally educated and she she did have that guy at first encourage her to study hieroglyphics, but she could understand stuff that very few people in the world could. So that guy and anyone else that she would have had access to couldn't teach her the things that she knew. Yeah. But she was doing this from... I mean, how many of these Egyptologists which are professionally trained but had learned hieroglyphics at the age of six? Probably not many. <laughs> so she might have a natural affinity to this sort of thing that gives her that skill. Yeah. You know, when you start learning things that young, uh -huh. then you can probably be much better than somebody who starts when they're 15, 20, 25. Yeah. Yeah, true. 
but still, some of them genuinely believe that it's impossible for her to have known the things that she did without having lived it and seen it for herself. There are, of course, other people who don't believe that at all. Um, Some people say it's all just down to delusions caused by her head injuries um, and just put things down to, like, lucky guesses and coincidences and... You know, if you if you guess enough places, one of them's going to be right. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not entirely what I'm saying. I imagine she did guess a lot of places. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure she was good at guessing. Yeah. Because of all the reading she did. Yeah. They say as well that there's no evidence for some of the stuff that she said. But obviously that stuff is still being explored. So there's a lot of stuff that she said that they don't know if it's true or not. Like, they haven't found it to be true, but they haven't disproved it either. Yeah. And they also can't rule out the possibility that she was shown information by researchers. Yeah. So she wasn't, you know, like an official researcher and Egyptologist and all that herself, but she could have been shown information by people who were that led her to the discoveries that she made or the supposed memories that she had. Yeah. So, yeah, that's all I know about the Pollock Twins and Dorothy Edie and supposed reincarnation. Very interesting. But you don't believe no, it. No, I don't believe it. I mean, <laughs> so the first one aside, my main about stories about reincarnation particularly with the second one is that they're always interesting people aren't they they're always somebody the secret lover of king henry the eighth or somebody who's involved <laughs> in the russian revolution or something and never is somebody reincarnated and they say oh yeah i mean i was a sheep peasant sheep farmer in wales in in the 1600s and nothing interesting happened to me but I'm sure there are people who say that, but no one really cares about the story. We would be expect. We would expect the vast majority of people to claim who claim to be reincarnated to be boring, right? Mm-hmm. But when we don't get that, or when there's lots of people who claim to be reincarnated that we don't hear about. Yeah, maybe it's that one. Maybe. Yeah. What do you think her reason would be? For lying, like, do you think she was conning everyone? No, I mean, she started saying this at a young age. Uh, I'm not convinced that the head injury is related necessarily. She's just mistaken. I don't want to use the word believing. Um, yeah, when you get that, when you start to believe that sort of thing as a child, then you can just you just snowball and you never never question. So you, so you think she did believe that she lived that life, but she didn't actually live it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's possible, yeah. Or, yeah, she believes it to an extent, and there's always a, an in, a vested interest in kind of keeping up the charade if she starts to doubt it a bit, or to exaggerate this bit. Or, but I think probably most likely 
she does believe it. It just is yeah. true. I mean, she died broke on the strength of doing this work. Mm-hmm. She didn't really get paid for any of it. She just wanted people to discover her home yeah. and to see those places again. So she did a lot of it for nothing or next to nothing. So, yeah, she died broke on the strength of it. But as you say, whether or not it's true, it seems she did actually believe it. Yeah. So whether that is just, I don't know, yeah, a childhood obsession that spiralled or whether it's because of her head injury. Yeah, and, knows? and to me that lines up with the idea that she was young and only knew a couple of details. Like, I saw, she saw a photo and I lived there. And then as she could learn more about, um, about ancient Egypt and could learn more about the history, that's when she started to have things revealed to her in her dreams. When she could do the research herself. Do you know what I mean? Like, she wasn't a six year old saying, Oh, and I was, and never, had never heard of, of, you know, all these things in ancient Egypt. And they said, oh no, I was the lover of this person and that person. Do you, yeah. know, do you know what I mean? She, she didn't have, she didn't learn anything spontaneously. She yeah. did all the research herself and then that then, then all the details were filled in in her dreams. Yeah. Um, what do you think of her first question about the photo being, where are the gardens? Where are the trees? Do you think she didn't say that? Do you think she was just guessing that there should have been gardens? Um, I think most likely she's just guessing that there should have been gardens. Okay. That's fine. But your your guess is as good as mine. What do you think? Um, I, again, there's like a little bit of my brain that just wants to think it's real. (laughs) Um... Again, I sort of, if real experts believe there's no way she could have known it, then I sort of have to think that they would have checked. Yeah. But, yeah, things could have been done, like, you know, yeah, sort I mean, of under the table, fed her information and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, not necessarily in a malicious way. I mean, humans are just naturally sloppy at that sort of thing. Yeah. They're just poor at, you know, they spot coincidences. Oh, sorry, they spot patterns where there are no patterns. Yeah. They make a big deal out of coincidences. So that sort of thing doesn't surprise me, honestly. Mm. I mean, like the other one, whether or not it's true, I just think it's a good story. Oh, it's interesting, yeah. And this definitely is more likely made into a film. <laughs> Another film that I will go and see. There's been documentaries about it. I don't know about feature films. I mean, okay, yeah, so you could say documentary if this is all reported or something that could have happened, but I think that you could make it a film and just say that this is fact. It's an interesting thing to make a documentary about because it might just all be nonsense. Yeah. It's most likely <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> I think it's more like I think it's better suited to being a a work of fiction. Hmm. Then they could play with it a bit more. <laughs> right, that's my waffle over. I believe you have facts. Yep, three facts 
or supposed facts. Two false, one true? Yes. Okay, here we go. I've got three colour-related facts or colour-phrase-related facts. Hmm. So, my facts are that the term yellow-bellied um, was coined after canaries with their yellow stomachs, which were um, so it was a term coined in the 18th century. They were known to be particularly cowardly, kind of flighty birds. You'd make a loud noise and they'd like fly away. So that's why you call somebody who's cowardly yellow-bellied. Right. My second fact was that the term black market was coined uh, from people who would steal graphite and then sell it on in on the black market. Uh-huh. Um, so obviously stealing graphite, you would um, your hands would turn black. Um, so the sign that you've been involved in the black market would be that you'd have uh, black marks on on, on, the, on your hands. Right. And then my final potential fact is that the term blue blood is uh, from Georgian England when a rumour spread around after an operation on King, on, on King George III that he had blue blood. And this was mainly an urban legend that was spread, but it did end up being reported in some of the minor newspapers as well. Okay. Did, I would imagine not, but have you listened to today's episode yet? Uh, no. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the blue blood thing is something that mum mentioned. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, okay. Yellow-bellied. I I can't remember what I think the origin of that is, but I think I've heard it, and I don't think it was that. So I'm gonna get rid of that first for no real reason. Yep. Um, black market. I would like that to be true. I think that's quite a good story for it. Um, Blue Blood. So a lot of people do think that blood is blue. Because presumably at some point it's been presented as fact. Well, they show it in scientific diagrams as being Blue and the oxygen. Yeah. But it's not actually. No. So is it just that people take diagrams very literally? Because we're going to get a lot of things wrong if that's the case. Or was it actually supposedly a real thing? Um. Uh, I want it to be black market, but I'm saying blue blood. Should have stuck with your gut. I would say that the 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 thing you should have picked up on there was that I wouldn't have been creative enough to come up with that myself. Whereas the other two, I uh, I could invent. I mean, yellow belly. You were right. You probably haven't heard the origin. It's from eels. Right. Yeah, yellow belly eels. Um. And blue blood, I'm not sure of the origin of it. But, uh, so I could have stumbled across uh, the correct origin, but I'm going to say that I was too specific. And that is not true. <laughs>
oh yeah that's interesting though yep i mean uh this is a fact courtesy of the keswick pencil museum so oh. <laughs> um so you know um, i uh i think i had pencil related facts on the mind i have other pencil related facts as well to share but <laughs> <laughs> Well, if I'm keeping scoreboards for each of my people, then neither of us have got a mark on there yet. <laughs> but maybe another time. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, if you enjoy pencil-related facts, or any other kind of facts, um, you can follow us on any podcast platform on Twitter at T-A-I-K podcast on Instagram and that's all I know podcast and I'll see you next week bye bye